Hello everybody, welcome to this episode of the Stag Roar, pretty exciting as I've said over the last few videos of where this is heading, um, pretty stoked that small fry stuff but we're knocking on the door of our first 100 viewed episode, that was our last episode with Eddie Dawkins absolute champion that he is. Uh, we have a few other videos and episodes that are knocking on the door of 100 as well so um, whilst they are quite small numbers I'm absolutely stoked and so thankful and grateful for everybody that has tuned in and listened or watched the stag roar. I know it's just basic ramblings but hopefully like me you're learning a lot from the experiences of other people and that's really why I wanted to do this podcast you know I've got so many thoughts going on in my head it's probably something to do with uh, getting through my 20s and, and starting to think about things that happened in my life and and of course plenty of life situations happening to me as well um, of course you would have seen on my Instagram next year expecting a child which is pretty exciting and so it's great to try and take some shortcuts and learn a few things off a few different people I guess. When I first decided that hey I'm going to start a podcast and I came up with a list of people that could be interesting to talk to, Cliff Harvey was one of those people that I had top priority around trying to get on and I'm, I'm stoked to get him on at a time that's early on while we're still finding our feet, still developing what the Stag Roar is about but also we've put up a little bit of a following and so hopefully this uh, grows what we're trying to do here and, and more people find out about the Stag Roar and get to listen to the people that we've spoken to so far. I first heard Cliff talking on a webinar for Prove It. He could probably be described as New Zealand's Dom D'Agostino. He is the man that knows what there is to know about ketosis. He's been practicing ketogenic and low-carb diets for the last 20 years. Um, probably at, uh, at the cold shoulder of most of the nutrition industry, but now as, as ketogenics is starting to take off, uh, Cliff's the man that everybody's turning to. Um, the foreword to his book, The Carb Appropriate Diet, is written by Professor Grant Schofield, so that just shows how much regard Cliff has held in the nutrition community. Um, Grant, of course, is the person that I wrote the My Vision article with uh, about low carb diets and how that can be effective for health in particular and for us as optometrists those with diabetes um, and also macular degeneration so Grant of course is on the New Zealand Ministry of Health um, I hope to try and get him on the podcast at some point but um, someone like Cliff and, and you'll hear in the podcast is held in high regard and, and somebody that whilst Grant's Cliff supervisor definitely has back and forth discussions with and teaches the team at what the health sorry 
let's get that right. What the fat? You'll hear about what the health later. <laughs> the team at What the Health, Cliff definitely contributes some of his ideas and learnings clinically to that team. Um, so it's enough from me. I hope you really enjoy this. I am absolutely stoked to have Cliff on. It was so good talking to him. I had a ton of other questions, so hopefully we can get him back sometime to answer those. But I hope you really enjoy what we've got to offer in this episode of The Stag Raw. Awesome. Thanks very much for coming along, Cliff. Uh, when I set out to do the podcast and I was thinking about who would be a great person for people to listen to, your name was one of the first ones that came into my head. So it's absolutely absolutely awesome to get you along. Um, I think the podcast itself might be starting to get some momentum. So you've come in at, come in at the right time. We're about to hit 100 views. Small fry stuff on, on a couple of our videos, but you know, you've got to start somewhere. Um, Absolutely, mate. You just put it out there and what will be, will be. That's right. Um, so for everybody out there, can you please explain to us who's Cliff Harvey today? Good question. That's an interesting way to put it. Um, today, I am basically, I'm a clinical nutritionist. That's what I do, you know, as a trade. Uh, that's what I've been doing in practice for the last 20 years. Uh, but more and more, uh, I'm working in the education space and uh, in the research space. So obviously, having started off, you know, all those years ago, 20 years ago or so, uh, working with low carb and ketogenic diets, and things like that. And then applying those in practice for so long and having a lot of, I guess, on the ground experience with those and, you know, being in the trenches and seeing what, what happens with change in diet with individuals. As I guess the mainstream in academia began to recognize the benefits of low carb diets more and more, uh, they sort of invited me back uh, to help formulate research and then to, to do research and now to sort of finish my doctoral journey in, in that space of ketogenesis and uh, what I call carb-appropriate diets. Nice, mate. So you just touched on there, you got welcomed back to finish your doctoral studies. Um, what sort of happened in the first place and how does it come about that they welcome you back? I read somewhere that you got kicked out of a nutrition class. <laughs> yeah, I, I got kicked out of nutrition class at university way back in the day. We're talking back in the 90s now. Um, and. <laughs> I wasn't being contrary. Well, I was being contrary. That's not true. But I wasn't being contrary for the sake of it. It was more so that even then I was very interested in a lot of the more progressive research that was coming out. And at the time, it wasn't really low-carb, high-fat so much. And it wasn't necessarily ketogenic diets, although I was very interested in that, um, you know, from, say, the mid-1990s onwards. A lot of the early stuff around at that time was more so low-carb, high-protein. And looking at you know increasing protein intake because that might be a benefit for, to people for cognitive function or for you know performance outcomes, all sorts of things, retaining muscle while dieting, all that kind of stuff. And so basically, I started running the numbers as we were learning more about nutrition and diets. I started running the numbers for the, the clients that I was beginning to see as a student practitioner, and it didn't really make any sense to be prescribing this really high level of carbohydrate that had been recommended that we prescribe and so we're talking there about 65 percent calories from carbohydrate which was a sort of recommendation at the time <laughs> yeah it, it's crazy right nowadays we look back at that and even really orthodox people would look back at that and say yeah that's too high but when i was looking at the 
amounts of protein that were beginning to be recommended by researchers in the field of nutrition. You know, guys <laughs> like, um, you know, all sorts of people that were reading Joel Kramer and, um, Oh, Lehman and, you know, Jose Antonio, all these guys who have gone on to sort of be the big names in the field of sports nutrition and supplementation. And then looked at the minimum amounts of fat required to preserve hormonal status. There simply wasn't enough left to give people 65% calories of carbohydrates. That immediately told me just on a pure, purely numbers basis that it wasn't going to work. And so when I, you know, asked the lecturers about that and, sort of challenged them a little bit as to why we would arbitrarily prescribe these high amounts of carbohydrate. They obviously didn't like that too much. And we were pretty much told that carbs come first. Now, because carbs are a, a non-essential nutrient, that never made sense to me that they should come first. I always thought we should provide for, at the very least, the minimum amount of fat that most people require to preserve hormonal status, and then optimize protein based on the outcomes that the client desires. And then surely that the carbohydrate intake is going to be to some degree determined by what their overall caloric requirement is because carbs are fuel. That, that's all they are, really. And so having been um, kicked out, I was given a pass for the class, which was nice. And so I basically went off from that point and, and worked in practice as a, 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 initially a nutrition coach and then a nutritionist, uh, clinical nutritionist over the years. And it was many years later that a colleague of mine, Joe McQuillan, who now works at Waikato University and I think is one of the unsung heroes of low-carb in New Zealand, he had suggested to some of the people who are now considered the, the thought leaders in the space, people like uh, you know my, my friends Grant Schofield and Karen Zinn, that maybe outside of the performance realm where they were starting to see interesting thing, things happen with low carb, but they should maybe look at that for public health outcomes as well. And um, obviously Grant took that and ran with it. And so he's been at the forefront of really promoting a change in, in diet here in New Zealand. Uh, Grant and Karen would both admit that they thought they had previously thought I was crazy. And uh, when they realized maybe I was still crazy, but not as crazy as they thought, they invited me up and we just started chatting about about diet and about low carb, high fat and ketogenic diets and all sorts of things. And from there, it's basically just carried on. And so, you know, Grant and Karen have been, have been awesome. They're my doctoral uh, supervisors. So they've really helped me on my journey. And I, I'd like to think that I've helped them a little bit as well with sort of fleshing out some of the clinical aspects of low carb that I've seen over these last two decades. That's, that's awesome. And um, yeah, I definitely have a shout out to Grant as well, it's, he was sort of the the switch for me. We I was I saw sort of this ketogenic stuff starts come come across in in Australia with with the exogenous ketones, and I was wondering what the hell is this talking about. Um, it tweaked a little bit with how you know diabetes metabolism might work, and then at, at one of our optometry conferences, we were lucky enough to have Grant there for two sessions, and he was sort of the 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 sounding board that I managed to get a few questions off and it really started to make sense. Um, I've I've always sort of wanted to know because I've done a sports nutrition paper which unfortunately I did terribly at, um, and and my girlfriend currently is studying some some science through Massey uh, and in the nutrition base on there still talking about food pyramid. She's done she did some some work through the naturopathic college and even with with them and, and somebody else who's at the Naturopathic College doing nutrition 
has has spoken to me about you know where is this where is this higher fat um, detail out there and and just how like you say that doesn't really quite make sense hormonally um, how how well what is it about you do you think that allowed you to sit back identify this and and realize it wasn't right when the sort of indoctrination of nutrition education says carbohydrates what what is it about you do you think that allowed you to run with that and, and like I say practice it for 20 years I think it was you know I, I always want to understand how things work I'm not necessarily happy just to to be told you know what to do I'd like to understand why it works and I, I think I'm much more of even though I, I like the nuts and bolts and I think I'm a pretty good rote learner you know I've, I've uh, been lucky enough to have the ability to have a very good memory but I think the way I learn most effectively is to understand concepts. And to understand concepts, you really need to understand how and why things are working. <clears throat> and within that respect, if you are looking at a dietary prescription that's putting the cart before the horse, in other words, you know, we must prescribe X amount of carbohydrate, as an example, and make that fit into someone's diet when it doesn't seem at all appropriate, that just doesn't make any sense. And so what I think we, we have a failure of in the nutrition sciences is people learn the basic sciences, the fundamentals of anatomy and physiology and pathophysiology and all those various things they might learn in the health field at the, the undergrad level. And that's good because that education is, is critical. And at, at some places that's not taught well enough, you know, straight up. But in many colleges and universities, it's actually taught very well. Then the next step is the application of diet. And unfortunately, that application of diet is basically placed on top of the basic sciences. And it's just a dogma that has been ingrained for a long time. And so that's basically plugged in on top of the sciences. So good, you understand your sciences. Now check that box. Now this is what you need to prescribe. What I try and do with my students, and it sort of mimics the, the journey that I took personally, is I like to teach what happens when you change the diet rather than here's your basic sciences and here's what you must prescribe here's your basic sciences and now what happens if we change the diet so what happens when we increase protein decrease protein increase fat decrease fat increase carbs decrease carbs and all the various permutations within how does that affect the functioning of the body and what's the potential outcome there? and then the next step is how does that affect individuals and who might that be, who might that be appropriate for and I think that's a much better sequential way to work through from your scientific understanding into the application of diet, whereas that's just really not what, what, what isn't done. And as a result, what we get is a very cookie-cutter approach to nutrition that comes out of most educational, educational institutes. Now, number one, it's not, it's not correct because it has been superseded now by the evidence so a lot of the things that are being taught are, are in contrast to the evidence. So it's not that people out there who are promoting other things are necessarily weird and wonderful or wacky. It's that the educational prescriptions just hasn't matched the pace of advances in science. Um, but what we also see is that when we have a dietary prescription, even if it was right, like let's, let's assume that the dietary guidelines for health worked, 
and let's assume that they're they're good and they're not we know that but let's assume that they are they still wouldn't necessarily work for everybody and so as practitioners i know i've talked a lot about this with um eric helms for example who you know i respect immensely i think he's one of the best minds in the industry and we both agree that you start with best practice based on the evidence because that's the safest and most prudent place to be but then with any one client or any one patient you move really quickly from that because you have to because no one is an archetypal model of the norm you know everyone's subtly different and so that's something that we have really begun to investigate more and we'll continue to investigate more and more and more and it's obviously my area of passion is to help people to discover what their unique dietary prescription is and you know who knows they might be pretty close to the norm but there are going to be people who are far outside of that and we're only just beginning to scratch the surface now of the the ethnogenetic factors and other factors that really come into play with respect to you know what your dietary prescription should be fantastic uh, you spoke on about cookie cutter approach to nutrition and from somebody on the outside of the nutrition world, it seems that you can sort of do an online course and call yourself a nutritionist. You said that you were registered as a clinical nutritionist. What does what does that mean? And and then what? How has that escalated to be called a dietitian? Yeah. So there, there's recently been, um, unfortunately, some criticism in the media of the of people who call themselves clinical nutritionists, and that's really unjustified, I think, because what they're looking at is the overseas experience where a lot of people will call themselves, as you suggest, a nutritionist or a clinical nutritionist without any real check and balance as to whether that person has a qualification. Um, so the way I look at it is in New Zealand, we have three registering bodies and I think there's too much bickering between various registering bodies. Um, my stance is that everyone who practices nutrition as a practitioner should be registered with one of those three bodies. Who they're registered with will depend on the type of qualification they've got and the way they want to practice. And so to be a dietitian, of course, you have to practice in a dietetic manner. You're probably going to be much more orthodox. You're going to have a degree and a postgrad qualification in dietetics. Uh, there are some very good dietitians out there doing very good work. You know, um, even though we may disagree at times, my, my good buddy Dave Shaw is, is cool and he's a, a great dietitian. He has a good dude. Yeah. Karen, obviously, is one of the leaders in LCHF in Australasia, if not the world now, and she's a great dietitian. You know, so there's really good dietitians out there, so there's really no animosity. On the other hand, we then have registered nutritionists who go through, they have to have a minimum degree in nutrition and several years of clinical experience. Um, and so there you've got, you know, people like Mickey Willardin, who is a PhD qualified nutritionist, who's a registered nutritionist. Then we have clinical nutritionists. Now, they're often more holistic uh, in, in sort of their focus and worldview. They have a slightly lower entry level qualification. So you have to have a minimum of a two year, minimum two year, minimum level six diploma in nutrition, although many clinical nutritionists have degree or, or postgrad qualifications. Uh, and you need to have fairly extensive clinical experience as well. So basically there's the three organizations and they're all slightly different, but the, I think they're all credible. Uh, where I am at worried about many practitioners is they have no real legitimate qualification. And or, even if they're doing a great job, the problem there is that 
So discharge your duty of care effectively. You need to have checks and balances. You need to understand your basic sciences and you need to know when you need to refer on and what your scopes of practice are. You know, that's really important, particularly when we start working with disease and disorder. Fantastic. That makes a whole bunch of sense. Um, <laughs> you're a PhD candidate and researching at the moment. Are you allowed to tell us what it is that you're trying to delve into at the moment? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I looked within my master's research, I looked extensively at ketogenesis and particularly at the use of medium chain triglycerides to induce ketosis more quickly and to mitigate symptoms of keto flu. And within that, there's a lot of embedded stuff. We were really, I think, the first, first group to really look at the keto induction period specifically. And although you'll often hear in, the, in academic circles and in, in scientific circles that we know a lot about the symptoms of being on ketogenic diets and we know how long it takes to reach ketosis and things, there's actually very little published in that space. And most of it has no consistency in either the way it's measured or, um, you know, it's not looking specifically at those things. It's sort of tangential stuff that comes out of other research. So that was a really interesting starting point. And we're now looking at comparing symptoms of dietary induction, so in other words, that keto flu, versus outcomes from differing low-carb diet. So our overall focus right now is basically asking the question, how low do you need to go? So do you need to be, you know, will you get the best effects with the least amount of discomfort by being on a very low carb ketogenic diet or maybe a modified ketogenic diet or maybe just a standard low carb high fat diet that's non-ketogenic? Within that, we're also looking at a lot of stuff. I mean, we're collecting a lot of data and we're looking, beginning to look in a pilot sense at some of the some of the biomarkers that might tell us whether someone responds better or worse to a lower or more moderated carb diet. And do, do you think that it could be something that practitioners could use to, to measure how well things are going or? Definitely. Yeah. I think um, even more so what we'd really like, and it won't come out of this phase of research because this is very preliminary stuff, but what we'd like to probably look at accumulating over time is some, some, hopefully a questionnaire that we can validate against markers so that a practitioner might be able to use that in practice to tell them whether someone should be on, let's say, a low or a very low or a moderate carb diet, just as an example. But also to have that suite of biomarkers that we know are validated against outcomes. Because at the moment, all we really have in terms of biomarkers is things that seem promising. And there's really nothing which, which has been validated to any large degree. So at the moment, you know, we would, as practitioners, be going on various things that we see within a client. Some of the things we know, like we probably know right now that if you're more insulin resistant, you're going to benefit more from a low-carb diet. If you're very insulin sensitive, in contrast to what a lot of keto people are going to say, you're probably actually going to benefit more from a high-carb, low-fat diet. Right? Even though I've done keto for off and on for 20 years, I'm gonna. I'm still happy to say that because that's what the evidence tells us. Um, but in terms of actually having any set of blood markers or other biomarkers where we can say, hey, you should be on a low-carb diet or you should be on a high-carb diet, we don't really have that yet. So then from this, is there a potential that you could be 
prescribing the diet wrong or as you say the wrong person doing the wrong type of diet back to your carb appropriateness yeah i think so because uh, i think the the tendency is and we can all suffer from this to some degree is you know when you're a hammer every problem appears as a nail and so if we're really interested in in low carb nutrition for example then most people that come to us we're going to prescribe that now in practice that's probably not that big a deal because number one if people are coming to us and they know we're into a particular style of diet it's likely they want to do that anyway and they're probably going to benefit from it Um, point number two is in the studies that have been done, which show the difference, for example, between insulin resistant and insulin sensitive people and their responses to diet, they all lost weight, right? They were weight loss studies, but because they were calorie restricted, everyone lost weight. It didn't matter. It's just that people lost more on the diet that was appropriate for them. So, you know, it's, it's not all that dire, but I think, yes, sometimes we can be prescribing things inappropriately or maybe being too, too extreme, um, maybe not recognizing that the same approach isn't going to work for everybody. Uh, and I hope that in clinical practice, I at least go some way towards recognizing that individuality of people. Love it. Um, now, you've, you've got the diploma from the Naturopathic College, and my girlfriend as well, she, was, she started off doing that, and unfortunately for her, it wasn't the direction that she wanted to take. Um, what, what does it mean to have that diploma for you, and, and what... If someone's out there exploring the nutrition realm and, and thinking about the naturopathic college, what will they get out of a place like that? Really, for me, that was that was part of the journey at the time. You know, I, I went to AUT initially and I did um, the diploma in fitness training, which doesn't exist as far as I know anymore. And that included, you know, strength and conditioning and fitness training aspects and you know general and sports nutrition and things like that and it was a pretty cool course but like I say it doesn't exist anymore it was a very applicable you know sort of an an applied course from there I wanted to get more in depth into nutrition and so I spoke to some of the universities around and you can guess that it just wasn't going to work to to go and study and do a degree um, and then go on and do postgrad in nutrition at the time you know we're talking in the late 90s and it was really not a lot of option if you're already beginning to investigate lower carb, higher protein, lower carb, higher fat, all those types of things. And so I thought about doing nutrition. I thought about going off and, and sort of going into left field and doing psychology as well. Um, but I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease and I wanted to look I guess more holistically at everything I was doing. And I thought uh, doing the naturopathic diploma would be a, a good way to look at just different modalities that I hadn't considered before. And I think it was a really valuable thing because, you know, one of the things that I was told a lot when I was studying was that you're too scientific. Um, and now, you know, well, naturopaths are still accusing me of being too natu- uh, too scientific. Other people accuse me of being too holistic. So I think I'm writing the line pretty well there. Um, but yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of different options now. And I think the great thing in the world of nutrition is that because of the way the research has moved on, there are lots of different options. So people can do diplomas in nutrition through through Wellpark and through the Naturopathic College. Uh, you know, if they have an existing degree or diploma, they can study through through my institute, for example, the Holistic Performance Institute and do a grad cert or grad dip in nutrition. AUT and Waikato are both really moving into 
nutrition and they're likely to be some of the leaders in, in, in lower carb nutrition in the future. And even the um, traditional universities are, are really starting to shift. You know, you've got really good personnel at the universities who are starting to change the way that nutrition is looked at. And while they might remain more orthodox, I think everything's going to, to shift a lot in the next, say, five years. Nice. Um, I was looking through your bio and I saw you're an, an advanced facilitator in Psych K and I thought, what what is this? And Scott, I followed, you, followed a Google search and, and found it really good. Um, one of the quotes that glared out at me was from Einstein, look deeply into nature and you'll understand everything better. And, and it looked at 11 principles of nature. What, what was it about something like that? Like you said, you wanted to you thought about doing psychology itself. Um, how did that course really sort of impact your life? That was really, you know, I've always been involved in, in, in what, you know, in a, I guess, medico-Western setting we'd call like mind-body therapies, you know, uh, to, to some degree. And I mean that from being involved in yoga from a very young age, you know, starting to do to yoga practice when I was about three years old and being involved with mindfulness of breath meditation basically my entire life and, and really having an appreciation for the role that the the mind plus, you know, the mind and more has to play in our health and our physiology and how those things all sort of feed into one another. And I've always been really interested in the in behavioral change because as any nutritionist or any good nutritionist will learn very quickly, um, you know, the best diet plan in the world doesn't mean a damn thing if someone can't change. And so some of the modalities I went on to investigate and learn a bit more about from Psych K through to Ericksonian hypnosis and all those types of things, they were basically ways that I could help my clients to change their behaviors more effectively and to then, you know, have, have much better outcomes. So really it was a, a thing that I could bring into my clinical practice that helped with the under-recognized side of what we do, which is basically that mind-body connection. Fantastic. And it was, for me, it was really exciting to see this aspect in, in your knowledge. Um, saw Dr. Libby speak two weeks ago, and it was the key thing that stood out for me as an optometrist when we've got sort of 10 minutes to talk about somebody's uh, sort of medical history and up comes the topic of diabetes or blood pressure or cholesterol and trying to, you know, impart a little bit of advice around, well, you know, maybe exercise or what is your diet really looking like and is it really this healthy or balanced diet? And really that was the sticking point is that it's all very well giving out the advice. We all know the advice. People still smoke, for goodness sake. Um, yeah. yeah, it's... You've really got to tap into what are the motives, what is it, what are the triggers for these people that lead them to do these things that they don't necessarily want to do, and and that was one of my big take-homes from that that speak, and and it was great seeing from yourself um, that you'd explored such a you know vast array of of techniques and tactics for helping out your clients. Yeah, and it's it's something that I've you know at various points in my career been relatively well known for, but it, it sort of ebbs and flows, you know, at the moment, because I think the resurgence of interest in low carb, I've become very well, uh, very well known again in the nutrition space for that. Uh, having been, you know, pretty well known in the nutrition space years and years ago from the work I did with celebrities and, you know, actors and athletes and all sorts of things. 
but there was a period there, particularly when I was living up in North America, where I was very involved in the mind-body therapy side and, you know, very involved in mind-body medicine and working with behavioral change and those types of aspects of naturopathic medicine and um, practiced a lot with that. It's interesting now that I, I feel like as things go on, I'll, I'll probably shift back not to doing that solely. I'll never lose nutrition. Yeah, that's always what I do. That's my bread and butter and I love it. But I will probably switch back a little bit more into um, doing a little bit more research in the mind-body side as well. And I'm working on some really cool projects around mind-body um, in practice for practitioners because I think that the counseling side of what we do and the behavioral change side of what we do is often under-recognized and underappreciated with respect to the education that we provide practitioners. Um, but also doing some front-facing stuff. You know, I'm doing some cool work uh, next year with Scott Gooding, uh, who was a, you know, Scott Gooding, he's a, a chef in Australia. Yep. Yeah. And uh, he's a, you know, fitness guy and, and also it's a really cool dude. And we're going to be doing some work next year and I'll probably be working a lot with his programs on mindfulness because that's something that I've always been involved with, you know, going on. I'm 38, so I started doing, started meditating and doing yoga when I was just a little little kid. So I guess I've been doing that for 35 odd years now. <laughs> cool. Um, How's that? I've been meditating longer than I've been doing nutrition. Nice. Just just while we're at that point, what what would have been the defining characteristic of Cliff Harvey as a five year old? Um, uh, the the biggest thing is uh, inquisitiveness and obsession. You know, I've, I've got a, a new book, which will, it's a little bit delayed because I, I, it's not quite right for me yet, but it'll be coming out next year. Um, that's a keto, the basically follow up to the carb appropriate diet called the keto appropriate diet. And in that I talk about this, this obsession that I've had, and it's not one single obsession, it's that I'll become obsessed with something and will learn everything I can about it. So whether it was dinosaurs or, you know, bonsai, which I started doing when I was a kid, which I still love now, or know the human body developing strength whatever it is you know i just become obsessed and, and try and learn everything i possibly can about it and thankfully i retain a little bit so i can carry that through and help people <laughs> awesome now, um, on your sort of western medico you, you're a reiki practitioner is that right i came across reiki probably through hayden rolston was was big on it for a while what what's the premise behind reiki and and do you still implement that today or is it something that's sort of fallen away yeah it's, it's fallen away and that's i've never actually practiced reiki um i i wanted to learn more about you know that this th these concepts that people talk about and uh, are somewhat undefined and and people don't really have a lot of understanding of I would like to think in some respects that I'm a bit of a myth buster and I, I'm, I, I, you know, I love an evidence-based practice, but at the same time, I'm fascinated by potential and by possibility. And so it was really around the time that I was doing a lot of further work in my own yoga practice and meditation, uh, you know, had studied Psych K and was really interested, interested in a lot of the buzz that was around me around various you know what we call energetic modalities and so i studied studied reiki and i, I liked a lot of the concepts uh i i didn't ever really practice because it, it it kind of came full circle where people 
in the Reiki field would sort of say, oh, well, you know, Reiki, Reiki is energy more or less, you know. And energy will go where energy is required and energy is all around us and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of thought, well, why do I need to be doing the, the physical postures and the, you know, the, the using the symbology and all those types of things if it's kind of go, going to go where it requ- is required anyway? So I think one thing I took out of that whole process, though, is that I think just being open to those things and to to studying them and to really trying to, um, through that process, I guess, become more emotionally open as well and more open and empathic as a practitioner, I think that made me a more compassionate person over time. And I think that made me a more empathic person overall over time as well. But, you know, like I say, if someone came to me nowadays and said, could you do a Reiki session? I'd say, no, it's not really, it's not what I do. Um, I'll sit down and talk to you about science and nutrition. Yeah, nice. Uh, Back to something a bit more, I guess you'd call it rigid. Um, Your certificate in core core conditioning with the Czech Institute. You know, you you hear about Paul Czech and, you know, this guy that's strong and tough. What was, what, what? sort of drew you to that and and what what was that certificate like it was cool like uh, you know there are people that i'm probably one of them but there are people that receive a lot of criticism because they're not seen as being you know the orthodox medical practitioner and i think paul's one of those guys i did that course 21 years ago i guess it was a long time ago and the I had become exposed to Paul through, you know, bro science magazines in the nineties, muscle media, 2000 and those types of (laughs) publications, but they were cool. You know, we learned a lot from those and really in in a mainstream setting, they were the only places that you'd read about ketosis and ketogenesis and low carb diets or high protein diets or whatever, you know, that's basically where you got it from because everything else was just healthy food guide type rubbish. And so you know, I, I learned about, you know, Pavel, the, the kettlebell guy and Paul Czech and all these other people and became really interested in what they were doing because it's cool. And so when Paul came down to New Zealand, I went to his uh, course and did his, at the time, which was called the Scientific Core Conditioning course. And that was, it was cool because the dude has a, he's got a big brain. He's, um, he certainly knows that he's got a big brain. Maybe he thinks his brain is bigger than it actually is, but he's a very, very intelligent dude. He was doing very innovative stuff. Uh, I took a lot from it. I think he's evolved a lot, and I think we've all we've all evolved over time as well. You know, no one's standing on Swiss balls doing silly things anymore because we've realized that that's ridiculous. Uh, but still, a lot of the fundamental, dare I say it, core concepts still have validity, and that certainly was one of the things that set me on a path to wanting to understand more about the body with respect to strength, um, you know, what what true strength really is, and then to go on and, and do, you know, what I did with weightlifting and things like that. And it was interesting, a few years after that, I had got into competitive weightlifting. I'd been doing relatively well at that. And um, someone said to me, oh, you, you should check out what Paul's doing now. You know, you should go and do this. And I saw him doing all these all-round lifts. They said, oh, you should do that. And I was like, I, I hold the world record in that. <laughs> I, don't need to, I don't need to learn that from Paul. <laughs> nice. And it was, you just uh, gave me a moment of realization where I heard the name Paul Check, and it was a Paul Check Swiss ball that we had, a bright blue thing in, in my house. And I think it had this rippling figure on 
squatting on top of a, a Swiss ball on top of it. So, you, yeah, if, been, and, and thankfully, people aren't doing that stupid stuff. <laughs> I still enjoy jumping up on a Swiss ball, but no, no, not, not every day. Um, you, you segued perfectly. Uh, world champion 2004-2007, uh, as well as being the vice president. What What is the powerlifting community like and how do you go from world champion to vice president in a quick... Well, that was, um, yeah, that's all-round weightlifting. And so all-round weightlifting, there are basically three disciplines in weightlifting. There's Olympic weightlifting, all-round weightlifting, and powerlifting. Um, originally, there was just weightlifting. And then that splintered in the after the 1940s, and they, they wanted to define the Olympic lifts. So the Olympic lifts split away, and originally there were three lifts. There was the snatch, the clean and jerk, and the press, um, which was a clean and, and strict press. And they subsequently dropped the strict press, so it just became the what we know now, the snatch and the clean and jerk. Um, the Americans loved to bench, so they formulated powerlifting. <laughs> And that became the squat, bench, and dead. And then basically all the other lifts are what we call the all-round lifts. And so there's, I think, around 140 lifts that are recognized weight lifts. And, you know, there's records held for them and there's world champs every year and things like that. But all-round weightlifting has, yeah, it, it's a small sport now and it's, it's, it's probably, it's shrinking because a lot of the guys who are into all-round weightlifting are some of the old you know, old time greats of weightlifting. And so unfortunately it's sort of, uh, I hope it's not a dying sport because I really love it. And I think it's amazing to look at some of the, the feats of strength that have been performed in, in just, you know, weightlifting in general. And that's sort of the, the legacy that's held by, by all round now. No, that's cool. Um, so what is, what is the world record for? I, I held a, I set a few world standards and I held a, a a verified world record in uh, in the thumbless deadlift, which was you know it's basically a deadlift without you're not allowed to put your thumbs on the bar, so it's just basically a finger lift. Um, a two man deadlift with James Powers of Ireland. We um, did a two man deadlift. I uh, briefly held a world record in the one arm snatch, um, but it was basically broken the same same day. Dude, <laughs> so I never went into the record books and um, set a world standard. Uh, didn't. Unfortunately, didn't manage to do it in competition, but uh, a world standard that was, you know, viewed by other people in the one-handed uh, one-handed deadlift. Um, I don't know if this is related, but I've seen uh, Dmitry Klokov now bringing in a lot of this single-arm snatching and, and lifting, and I think he's trying to start a, a movement of, I think he's calling it Klokov lifting or something like that. Yeah, are you familiar with what he's doing there? Is that very similar? No, but there, there have been a lot of guys in the Eastern Bloc, and what you know, what was the Eastern Bloc, did carry on with a lot of those lifts. And in the West, it really died away. You know, like similar to kettlebells. You know, kettlebells are not a Russian thing. Kettlebells were used throughout weightlifting, in, in Europe in particular, and in the United States. Are, you know, up until relatively recent times, they died away. And it was only really when Pavel reintroduced them to the West that they, they took off again. Um, similarly, I think a lot of the all-round lifts and a lot of the, just the general strength stuff carried on in, in a lot of these countries, but it was you know behind the Iron Curtain through the, <laughs> through, through the 80s and 90s, and it's, it's probably getting a bit of a resurgence now. Uh, you know, if, if Klokov is doing some cool stuff there, it would be great for him to... You know, I would like to see for people not to set up competing organizations and things i think you know given that all uh 
the International Association of, or, or, sorry, the International Around Weightlifting Association pretty much carried that torch for whatever it is, 70 odd years. Um, it'd be nice that the, if they all got together and really started to promote the sport again and get some people interested in it. I think the, the, the time is prime for it because you've got CrossFitters all over the world who just want to try new shit. You know, they're like Energizer bunnies. They want to try something new all the time. And we, we had some great little all-round competitions that were really well um, populated by CrossFitters. Nice. Um, 2006 took a sabbatical to South America. Um, you wrote a book. What, what was it about South America and, and what was it about the book that the, t- the two things, did they align or, or they were mutually exclusive? In retrospect, they did align and it was probably a, a naive sort of um, fantastical idea having read, uh, what's his name, James James Redfield, you know, Celestine Prophecy and read, reading lots of Paolo Coelho and... Um, authors like that, South American, that were either set in South America or South American authors and, and thinking it's probably a pretty interesting and, and mystical place to go. Uh, as it turns out, I spent quite a long time there and I ended up holed up in Buenos Aires for a little while and that's where I wrote my first book, Choosing You. And it, it was it was very fortuitous, you know, it was just that, that it was the right book for the right time for me. Uh, looking back, you know, it, it's, it's probably an embarrassing book uh, in some respects, and that's a positive thing. I view that as a positive. You know, one of my good friends is M. Brooks, the, um, the the business author, and he said, "Look, if you can look back on your books ten years later and you're not embarrassed, you're not doing something right because you're not growing, you're not evolving." Uh, but it was cool because that that really helped to solidify a lot of what I was doing in clinical practice because I started out writing a nutrition book, and. I realized very early in the writing process that, that this isn't going to have any impact if people can't change. And so I started writing a chapter on behavioral change and it grew into a book. Now, even though it's not the book that I'd write today, it still benefited people. You know, people got a lot from it and I got some really nice feedback from people around the world saying, you know, your, your book really helped me. So uh, for that reason, I've kept it, I've kept it live on Amazon and people still buy it. So cool. <laughs> nice. Uh, you transitioned into a, Time rich cash, optional. I, I, I'm probably between the two of those things at the moment. Uh, I described described to somebody that uh, I was in, in in a period of of finding my thoughts, and I think that probably comes with the age I'm at at 28. But what what's what's time rich cash optional really motivating or or about? That's really that idea that you know time is our our key currency and. You know, obviously, money is our medium of exchange, but it's a way that we can fill that time with joyous experience. So it's really about taking an experiential approach to life. And it certainly doesn't mean that we want to, you know, be as time efficient as we can be or any of those types of things, because they're they're actually quite redundant. Um, You know, what we're really, what I'm really investigating in the book is what's most important you know how do we set the goals that really matter as compared to just setting goals because we feel directionless and then how do we achieve the things that provide for the greatest amount of passion and purpose in our life because then you know we're spending that 24 hours a day that we've got now our time account well you know it's one of those things where i can often because I, i tend to get wrapped up with doing too much 
you know, I, I like stuff. So I, I'm like a shiny, what do they call it? A shiny people person or a magpie? Like, oh, that's cool. That, that seems like fun to do. And I'll get overworked and I'll get tired and I'll start to think, oh, no, I've got no time. And I always have to stop myself and say, well, you've got all the time in the world, just like anyone else. You're choosing to spend your time in a particular way. So is that serving you well? And if the answer is no, well, then you change a few things, right? But you still go back to the very empowering position of I'm spending my life according to my choices. And that's really the extension from choosing you into time-rich cash option. Nice. And I guess that goes to that statement that you're busy doing the things that you're saying yes to, isn't that right? And and probably probably a book that you've commented about recently, and it's sitting behind me, Tools of Titans, um, there's, there's the comment in there, and, and I forget who, who said it, but it's about don't be a donkey. You know, if, if a donkey's standing there and he's got a pail of water and he's got a, a bale of hay and he stands in the middle deciding which one to do, then he, then he dies. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but if you go and do that and, and, and take the time and invest, you're going to get something out of that and then you can go and do the next thing and, and get something out of it. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It. I mean, it's about making empowered choices and about better defining, you know, what we're doing and why. And then, you know, being much more mindful of the process and where we're at. You know, we have goals and we're goal orientated, but we're process driven. And that's that's the important thing. So I think you can see, I'm just gonna ruin my whole cool setup. <laughs> up here. What are you doing? Yeah, you know, what are you doing right now? That's basically a call to action that I have behind me all the time because if I'm ever feeling that I'm directionless or, you know, wasting time, whatever, don't have enough time, whatever it happens to be, you can always ask yourself that question, what are you doing right now? And if the answer is something you don't want to be doing, then don't do it. But if it's something that you want to be doing, then then do it. You know, don't live in the future or the past or be worrying about something else. Do it completely. Uh, it comes from a... a I think it comes from Zorba the Greek, actually. What are you doing, Zorba? I'm kissing this woman. Well, kiss her well. <laughs> Being fully engaged in the moment. Fantastic. Is there is there any other quotes that you try and live your life by or, or that you've referred to often or anything like that? Yeah, I've got... Um, on the other wall, I've got... Just a couple of, again, calls to action. Be grateful, be mindful, breathe and move. I mean, these are just, you know, more more tool type things. You know, they're, they're actual actions that you need to do. But I think it's important to be reminded of that. Um, I, I've really been into the book 10X at the moment. I don't know if you've read that by Grant Cordone. No. It's, it's funny because it's not, it, it's kind of like swatting at flies with a with a sledgehammer it's just a unashamedly like motivational put in the effort do the work you know get shit done kind of book but i kind of dig that so on my opposite wall in my office um, i've just got a big 10x written because it's basically the idea that you know what do you think you can achieve times it by 10 you know really aim for much greater fantastic um Something that I loved popping up on my Facebook a few months ago, uh, the fantastic movie, 
what the health came out. I, I, I became became aware of it. Uh, a fellow person in the Prove It um, environment frantically emailed me saying, oh, my friends and I've watched this movie. It basically writes off everything that we're talking about. Have you seen it? And I read the title and consequently emailed her back, are the makers of it vegans? And she said, yes. And I said to her, well, they're probably correct in a lot of what they're saying, but take it with a grain of salt that a lot of what they're saying will also be slanted towards their narrative. And and I consequently read the, uh, what is his name? The paleo, paleo bloke. Uh, it slipped my mind anyway. And then Rob, Rob Wolf. Rob Wolf, thank you very much. And uh, a, a friend of mine who was on the vegan camp said, oh, well, he's the paleo guy. Of course, he's writing about that. And I was like, yeah, but what he's written is true. <laughs> he's, anal he's analyzed the statements and, and it's true. And then he consequently came through. How many times did you have to watch that movie to come up with your answers? And, and what was your experience watching the film like? Because they, they did seem to, to throw the baby out with the bathwater in that film. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, it was... There was a hard thing to do to sit through it because it's. I, I love debate, you know. I love academic debate, and I love other people's viewpoints. You know, I like to think that when, when people have opposing viewpoints, that makes us all better because we need to reevaluate our position and we need to ask ourselves, you know, what's the truth within what they're saying, and where does that cause me to shift? How can I improve and become better as a result of that? But it can be equally frustrating when. There, there are just blatant untruths being told to you as fact. And that's something that I just don't, don't abide by. And I don't care what it is, whether it's people in the keto camp or people in the vegan camp or people in the naturopathic community trying to sell you a hair test or whatever it happens to be. If it's not legit, it's not legit. And that's basically the, the bottom line. And so I had to sit through the, the film and take some notes and then write a, a response. And I think you're 100% right. There is so much good that can come from a plant-based diet, you know, and one of the biggest things we can do for our health is to eat more vegetables, and I don't think anyone disagrees with that, but to, to resort to fear-based marketing, and that's what you're basically doing. You, anytime you're putting something like that out, you're, you're marketing, right? And to resort to fear-based marketing to scare people into a vegan diet or scare them away from meat, I think is really disingenuous, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges we have in the health and nutrition field at the moment is there is way too much fear-based marketing. You know, people are scared of meat. They're scared of toxins. They're scared of chemicals. You know, they're scared of all these scary buzzwords, but we need to look at what the evidence is for that. And as you saw in my response, the evidence for what they were saying was either non-existent or it was disingenuous. It had been misconstrued. Uh, you know, or, or there was just counter evidence that was so much stronger. So, you know, we, we, we need to come to a much more pragmatic position. Like if someone wants to be vegan, that's cool because they've made a powerful choice to do it. But don't tell someone else that eating an egg is going to be worse than smoking five cigarettes because that's stupid. I mean, that's, got, that's just a ridiculous statement. Um, it, it took me to another place this week. Um, I often listen to the London Real podcast. Uh, two podcasts in a row, he's had something quite controversial for me. Uh, 
the, the first one was uh, the eye exercises to help you see and you you wearing glasses I'm sure you'd, you'd love to be able to not wear glasses and I've had laser surgery and back wearing glasses so I do need to read that book and and see if I can get rid of my glasses and ruin my profession but the next podcast with the London Rail with, with Brian Rose uh, he interviewed Dr. Michael Greger, who's in that film. Uh, um, and again, he spoke about great things to do with plant-based diets and he's sitting there agreeing with it and thinking this guy's not that bad. And then he'd just go back to that, oh, give kids, you know, you might as well give kids a pack of cigarettes and, and lumping lumping uh, in meat-based diets with processed foods and saying one thing about insulin affecting cholesterol and then throwing back to saturated fats and you're just thinking your the evidence out there is, is not the same and then the topic of Alzheimer's came up and he blatantly outright said there is no evidence for a, a nutrition-based treatment of Alzheimer's and in, in the keto world we've, we've come to see this how MCT oil may help um, with your knowledge could you explain what what it is about a ketogenic diet and Alzheimer's and what are the early, obviously, indications for how that may help? Yeah, and I mean, whenever we talk about a condition or a supplement or a food, you know, let's say coconut oil is a good example. A lot of people will talk about the idea that coconut oil is not a good addition to the diet because of the fact that it's saturated fat or it's predominantly lauric acid which is C12 fat and it's not uptaken by the portal vein the same way as other medium chain triglycerides and blah 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 and saturated fat will increase in LDL which has a linear correlation with cardiovascular blah 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 cool whatever I think all of that stuff when you're using proxies is only good as a hypothesis right and in order to go one step further you need to actually look at the evidence for coconut oil as it relates to health in the same way, um, when sorry, I've completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> rephrase your question again. So, um, and I'll pick it up with with MCT and and ketogenics and sorry. Alzheimer's. Yeah, Alzheimer's. We need to look at the evidence for Alzheimer's itself. And so we start from a position of, okay, what seems to worsen outcomes? And it seems that there is a correlation based on the evidence with high-carbohydrate diets, you know, the, this intake of processed and refined carbohydrates, high sugar intakes, those types of things, and a higher prevalence of Alzheimer's in relation to that, right? So that's sort of step number one. That doesn't prove anything, but it gives us a, an indication of where to go. Then we begin to see utility and improvements for Alzheimer's disease in animal models and beginning to see that in human models from ketogenic diets. And we begin to see utility for MCTs and we begin to see utility for exogenous ketones. And so what we're basically seeing there is potentially a role to play for the destructive effects of glucose in the brain, um, both with respect to glycation and increased oxidative damage in the brain, but also potentially underfueling the brain. Because over time, if we have damage to glucose transporters and, and neurons can't uptake nutrients as effectively, there are changes that are going to occur from you know the underfueling itself 
through to other things like uh, increased glutamate to GABA ratios, increased excitotoxicity of that and all those various aspects. So by being on a lower carb diet that allows for the production of ketones or by encouraging the production of ketones through MTTs or providing ketones directly from exogenous ketones, we're basically allowing there to be fueling without necessarily the glycative and oxidative damage that occurs when we're having those high carb and high sugar diets. You know, it's there's such a high correlation as well between metabolic disorder and Alzheimer's that, you know, many people in the lay field have started calling Alzheimer's type 3 diabetes. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily an apt description, but it certainly describes to some degree the internal environment that occurs when people are developing Alzheimer's. Now, Gregor and others would disagree because they would say that a high-fat diet causes diabetes, right? So they'd say that consequently, it's likely to have a negative effect with Alzheimer's as well, if we consider that it's part of a metabolic syndrome of disease. But that again would stand in contrast to the evidence. You know, if, if a high-fat diet or a reduced carbohydrate diet is causing diabetes, then surely it would worsen diabetes. But it doesn't. It doesn't worsen diabetes. In fact, it's the best treatment for diabetes. And that is that is beyond doubt. And I think if we look at pre-diabetes, insulin resistance versus insulin sensitivity, the studies by Gardner and others and Pittis and others and Ebeling and others and Cornier and others, which are basically the only four RCTs that have evaluated that, they all say the same thing. If you're pre-diabetic, if you've got insulin resistance, you should probably be on a low-carb diet. So the theory is not backed with any evidence. Now, when you have a theory that's not backed with evidence and you've got counter evidence and it's pretty strong, as a scientist, you have to say the first hypothesis is wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, anybody that follows me on Twitter will see I'll tweet most days a retweet from the Verda study, um, which is not a random controlled uh, study, but something that's implementing, like you have been in practice, a ketogenic diet. And they're also a Silicon Valley sort of operative and they're trying to implement e-medicine. Is this and bollocks? Yes, okay. that's right. Yeah. And again, having having great results, in many cases reversing people, well, putting people into remission, you might call it, of type 2 diabetes, reducing medications in type 2 diabetes, and having, you know, 92% um, adherence to the diet, you know, and that, that, in, contrast, in contrast to what you're often told, which is that a low-carb diet is too difficult to adhere to. And that is a statement without evidence. Yeah. Because ad adherence to diets is poor anyway. It's no worse on a low-carb diet. And you and I will know, we often see that it's, it's easier because, from my point of view, for many of the patients we deal with, elimination or abstinence is easier than moderation. And often so many of the dietary paradigms we rely on rely on excessive control and moderation. So you need to eat small, frequent meals through the day. You need to moderate your portion sizes. You need to eat moderately this and this and this and this. And you need to make sure you're calorie restricted. In contrast to many people who are following a diet that's more based around real food, number one, so whether it be a paleo diet or any other diet that focuses on real foods or a low-carb diet, can typically eat ad libitum and they still end up calorie restricting. Yeah. And just they don't, they don't realize it. So that, that's cool, right? Because if you don't realize you have calorie restricting, that's easy. Absolutely. And um, today I was 
looking looking through some stuff at, at work and for for the other other way there's a study done called the women's health initiative um people people lost weight in in the year but by the next year they'd put it back on um that was based on 20 percent fat diet and then from that there was also no benefit to these people in terms of their risk of diabetes and their risk of heart disease so you know by trying to address an obesity epidemic with this you know you know, dogmatic approach to nutrition they like they always say oh anybody on a nutrition plan will lose weight if they follow if they follow it still didn't improve the overall outcomes that they were trying to prevent the the heart disease and the diabetes so exactly. yeah it's 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 amazing stuff um do we bring up the name ansel keys or or just, just... i think you know a lot of the early researchers and and i think keys is part of this is I, I don't think they i don't think it was any grand conspiracy i think that the the hypothesis was just misguided and there was a lot of there was a lot of confirmation bias in the research that was and wasn't published you know the um the famous sort of minnesota data that was left in the basement for whatever it was for 50 years that was in stark contrast, and it was a you know a better controlled study. It was a, a better data set to be using, but because it was in contrast to the evidence, uh, sorry, in contrast to the hypothesis that was being presented, it wasn't ever published. And I don't think there was necessarily anything nefarious going on. I think the the researchers, from what I've heard and read from people who were sort of around that or had been associated with it they really thought that they had got things very wrong and that there would be data coming out over time that would be proving this cholesterol, saturated fat, heart disease hypothesis. I think as we go on, we, we realize that that's very tenuous and that that doesn't really exist, you know, from even the conclusions of studies that are used to support a lower fat, higher carb eating structure like the EPIC study, it doesn't really say that. You know, there, there, there's actually little that can be construed from that. And then you have data that's in really direct contrast to that, like the Pure study, which was recent, recently released, which doesn't necessarily say, despite what the media reported, it doesn't say that a low-carb diet is best. What it says is that a, a higher-carb diet, like a high-carb diet, is a greater correlation with mortality. What I draw from that is that a lower carb diet is likely to be better, but number one, there's no problem with eating more fat. That's right. And so if we can stick to a diet that is somewhat unrestricted in fat, not that we're trying to eat lots, but somewhat unrestricted in fat and is focused on real food, most people find out where they should be. You know, through trial and error, most people figure out that, you know, I respond better to moderate carb, I respond better to very low carb. You know, people, people can find that out for themselves. But the most important thing is what can I stick to day to day that allows me to perform well, be lean and have great looking bloods. Great. And on, and on great looking bloods, another one I came across today was called the United Kingdom Prospective Diabetes Study, looking at uh, relationship between A1C, which is a, another biomarker of glucose in the blood bound to hemoglobin. Am I correct there? Yeah. yeah. And, um, that's, that's a measure of, of type 2 diabetes. If they, um, for every 1% increase in the A1C measurement, and they didn't have an arbitrary platform for this, um, 
there was a 14% increase in myocardial infarction. So that's that's a, a heart attack, which is probably the, the main killer for diabetics rather than, than the actual diabetes. And in, in an inverse, uh, if they lowered it by 1%, they reduced that risk by 37%. Now, I don't know what the exact numbers of these reductions are, but it's pretty good. It's the same, the same, same for eye disease as well. Any one percent reduction in in A one C gives you a thirty percent reduction in retinal problems. And I always say to a patient, the reason why we're taking a photograph of your blood vessels in your eyes is we can see what your vascular state is like. And if that organ itself is bleeding, what are your other organs doing? You know. Definitely. And the other that, that link between you know. Dysglycemia, you know, poor, poor blood glucose regulation and cardiovascular disease and, and a whole host of other fact, uh, conditions is incontrovertible now. And it, it's it's still amazing that it's not given the, the credence that it deserves. You know, that that's a massive effect size to see that sort of correlation with reduced incidence versus a very small change in that marker. When you compare that, for example, to the effect overall of a, a massive reduction in sodium intake, which is, you know, typically pushed down our throat, and the effect size that that has on mortality, which is nothing actually, but the the very small effect it has even on blood pressure, which is then correlated to outcomes, that type of result that you're talking about is just many magnitudes of order greater. And so we need to be looking at the things that have the biggest impact, not you know proxy measures that don't really work out in in vivo. Yeah, and, and another factor they had from that is putting people on insulin, of course, creates weight gain. And we we see in eyes people type two diabetics that end up on insulin, their their retinopathy can actually become worse. And and is this? Do you think there's something to do with the inflammatory characteristics of insulin? I always often think that it's trying to throw shit at a wall and hope some sticks when they put a type 2 diabetic on insulin. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's not... Um, I mean, there, there can be obviously valid reasons for going on insulin, but it should be the last protocol when, when, when diet and exercise have been addressed as well because, you know, that males, as an example, will have much better results from, from exercise than women typically for both weight loss and probably for increasing insulin sensitivity as well, right? And so if someone has not been at least given some pretty great advice around movement, which includes resistance training and reducing carbohydrate in the diet, then the rest, yeah, I mean, one thing that could be occurring as well is that often when people are put on insulin, they're also given poor dietary advice, right? So in some respects, people actually increase their carbohydrate intake in response to being put on insulin. Why? Because they should be on, according to dietary guidelines, a low-fat, high-carb diet. I've had several diabetic clients who have actually ended up eating more carbohydrate as a result of the guidelines they've been given. And obviously, we, we change that pretty quickly because I say to them, dude, that's not the way to go. But that's, that's a worrying thing as well. So although the insulin is likely to be having some negative effects all in and of itself, it can also be just the progression of the diet, the uh, the disease in relation to the diet, and then you know the, the drug being basically a, a marker of everything else that's going on. Because insulin's interesting that it can be inflammatory or anti-inflammatory. Mm. And on on the flip side, when it comes to type type one diabetes, there's plenty of graphs out there showing 
tighter tighter insulin and blood glucose on a low carb diet do you think that's this response to insulin or oh, i've got I've got to eat more carbs, or oh, I've eaten more carbs, so I've got to have more insulin. Now my my sugar's down. Now I've got to have more carbs. Do you, do you think that's? It's, yeah, it's both. It's basically riding the blood glucose roller coaster, and it's it's often getting poor advice as, as as to where your levels should be. I think sometimes in diabetes, people are so scared of having a hypo that they end up trying to maintain aggressively high blood glucose levels. You know, they're really worried about hypoglycemic coma. So I've had patients try and maintain, you know, eight millimoles of blood glucose. Now that's, you know, about 80% higher than we would consider to be a healthy, stable, you know, low normal blood glucose level. And so to, to my mind, that's really preventing a possible calamity now and really encouraging a likely calamity later. So that, that doesn't really work. So you're 100% right. I think prudent use of insulin is, is critical for a type 1 diabetic. But there's no point compensating for an aggressively high carbohydrate intake with aggressively high insulin use. That just has never made any sense to me. When I first started practicing, uh, within a couple of years, I was working with some diabetic patients. And within weeks, we had halved their insulin usage. And the criticism was that this is dangerous. You know, you're having people eating less carbs and using less insulin, like, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Moving away from, from the health side of things, I suppose it still fits within the realm of health. Something that I personally found with uh, taking exogenous ketones, now I didn't measure my ketone levels or anything, but I was having exogenous ketones before a rugby game. I found that my recovery state from efforts and then again yesterday when I went on a run did some hill efforts my recovery state from efforts felt very fast and so firstly if you could comment on why that might be and secondly if someone was on the ketogenic diet and in a state of ketosis would they still have those same benefits so you were taking exogenous ketones and not on a ketogenic diet High, a low carb diet, not a ketogenic diet. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think um, you know that there's been a study published recently where there was no improvement in in time trial performance as a result of exogenous ketones, um, but there was an increase in fat oxidation. I think we're going to see a lot more nuance within how people respond in a performance sense. From, from ketones. Now, from my point of view, they almost work like a crossover fuel. They're going to help to absolutely support those recovery periods, I think, because in those recovery periods, you're not necessarily reliant on glycolysis. So you're not necessarily reliant on using glucose to fuel. You are going to, as your heart rate comes back and as your breathing rate comes back, you're going to basically, so you're, in other words, you're getting out of oxygen debt, you're going to be again potentially burning more fat for fuel and within that crossover area you're going to be using ketones for fuel so they're basically providing to some degree recovery fuel between those uh, more intense bouts there's going to be a point at which of course you you have to be using glucose for fuel and i think that's the the great unknown for a lot of athletes is how much carbohydrate do i need to be eating for my particular sport to fuel the higher intensity side of it now, if you're running for 
three days straight and you're just doing pure survival shuffle, the amount of glucose that you're going to require is, is minimal. You know, your body will be producing the glucose that your brain and central nervous system requires. Um, you know, you're likely to be producing ketones if you're on a very low-carb diet anyway, so that's going to support that. But there are always going to be processes that rely on glucose for fuel, but you can probably provide those. Most people can provide those relatively easily. In other sports, uh, it can really vary. So, you know, a marathon, a, a lot of people are going to require a little bit of, well, maybe not, but if they were wanting to run really fast, they might require a little bit of carbohydrate. Um, for repeated high-intensity efforts, a lot of people aren't going to require a lot of carbs because there's simply not enough volume to necessitate having really high glycogen stores. However, if you're, say, a CrossFit athlete who's competing at the Games and you're having to repeat those high-intensity efforts over and over and over again over two days, it's likely that you're going to need some carbohydrate. So really, where anyone is going to be is determined by the volume of high-intensity activity that they are undertaking and how often that needs to be repeated and who they are. Because some people just don't need a lot of carbs and some people seem to thrive on a lot more. So there's a lot going on there and I think that's where the opportunity is, is that it's really exciting because we're starting to see now that there is quite a big spectrum of how people should eat for optimal performance, depending on who they are and what they do. Fantastic. And so that's where the diet, you, you may not get that same result if you're needing more of those carbs. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. And that, that's going to be determined really by the, um, the, the frequency and exposure you have to the high intensity stuff. Fantastic. Now you've, you've, you've cleared that up in my head, I think. Um, and the other person I was talking to today that came up with that question, hopefully that cleared them up too. Um, you were in the New Zest top. What what does formulator mean? <laughs> I basically developed the product. So I um, originally it was myself and Kira Sutherland, uh, a naturopath in Australia. We got together with um, the, the other co-founders of the company and developed the, the products initially. So we developed Good Green Stuff, which is a multi-nutrient product, and Clean Lean Protein, which is our protein product. Uh, we've been joined in the last few years by Rob Verkirk out of the UK, who's a research research scientist, um, you know, PhD scientist in, in the UK. And so he helps us formulate the products, and we pretty much, we, we just get together now and, and formulate all the stuff. So in a nutshell, it means we do research, we look at what we want in a product, we chuck it down on a piece of paper, uh, and then we send it off to the food techs to make it taste good. And it does taste good. Uh, I came across New Zest, um, I think it was 2013, um, in a nice little holistic shop in Invercargill, funnily enough. I was training, training for Sevens, and, and the lady sold it to me as this is low and in, low inflammatory. Why, why is pea protein low inflammatory? I think uh, it's probably... It's probably a little bit, it's correct, but it's incorrect. Mm -hmm. I think that the thing is that a lot of people now, not, a, not the majority, but there are a significant minority of people who suffer from some degree of a, a milk protein allergy, right? And again, like I'm not saying that it's everybody out there, but there is a significant subset of people who have some degree of intolerance or allergy to one of the milk proteins, whether it be casein, whey, or a combined milk protein allergy. 
And so what we find in practice is that a lot of people who do have that and they hadn't realized when they switch from, say, a whey or a casein powder to a pea protein, they get a lot less effect, whether it be gastrointestinal effect or whether it be systemic effects like maybe skin skin rashes or eczema or other you know, effects that we might see in, in the presence of intolerance or allergy. So that's, that's really the reason we used a pea protein isolate was that we figured it could be the lowest allergen protein we could find. It was therefore likely to be able to use by the, the most amount. In the latest formulas, I saw the MCT and coconut was one of them. Uh, what, what are they, the, those three coming out at, and targeting? Uh, they're basically, they're, they're called functional flavors, but that, that's really because they've used functional ingredients to flavor them. Uh, so that was a, a bit of a side project by our, our food tech guy in, in Aussie who did a great job on the flavors and they taste, they taste awesome. For someone who's looking to use MCTs as a ketogenic supplement, there's not likely to be enough MCT. Um, so it's not really an MCT supplement, but there's going to be some benefit from low levels of MCTs and um, likewise for the other ingredients like turmeric and um, the, the chai herbs and things like that. Fantastic. So we've been uh, talking for good, good wee while now. Where, where, do, where do people find Cliff? Thank you so much for all this, mate. It's been awesome. That's my pleasure. Yeah, so people can find out about me um, and the various things I do. Probably probably best place to go is my, my website, cliffharvey.com. Uh, and that sort of links out as well to the other things I'm involved with from the Holistic Performance Institute through to NewsDesk through to nutrition store and my patreon page where people can support my research fantastic and uh social medias are you across them what's that the social medias where, where can they find you on there if they want to check you out oh, first first port of call is on facebook at um cliff Harvey author so facebook.com forward slash cliff Harvey author fantastic yeah, well mate. I'd love for people just to you know jump on there get involved ask me some questions have some fun. Brilliant. I'll, I'll, I'll let you get off for the night. Once again, thank you so much and uh, cheers. Cool. Thanks, mate. I appreciate it. Talk soon. Ta. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did interviewing Cliff. My apologies if we went a bit deep into, as Tim Ferriss calls it, the weeds, uh, getting a little bit technical a couple of times there, but uh, what a mind and what a story he is to tell. Um, obviously, Cliff and I aren't doctors. I'm an optometrist. Cliff is a new clinical nutritionist. Uh, this is not prescriptive. This is just some general advice and general understanding. Always work with a health professional when changing something. But as you can see, there is a whole world to be explored in, in the realms of diet and even as Cliff says, he's, he's not going to prescribe the dogmatic um, prescription of nutrition to everybody and, and it is all individual cases so you should always be working with your prescription and what works for you and it's the same for us as optometrists. Uh, there is no cookie cutter optometry, it's all individual and geared towards the patient. Uh, make sure you check out Cliff's links. Um, simple Google of Cliff Harvey will bring up plenty of things. Um, also, as he said, he's on Facebook and more than happy to take your questions on Cliff Harvey, the author. Uh, 
uh, great guy, always really approachable, and it was so good to be able to finally get him on the podcast. So I'm absolutely stoked. Those exogenous ketones that we talked about on the podcast, of course, you can get those from Waikito. That's W A I K E T Zero dot experienceketo.com. As always, Waikito brings you this episode of the Stag Raw. Uh, check out the Facebook page. You can just search at Waikito. No zero this time. And we've got a whole bunch of different links about ketosis, plenty of Cliff's work. Uh, Dave Shaw, who we spoke about earlier in the podcast, um, got some links to the research that Dave's doing. Um, another person that we can hopefully get on to the podcast at some point. Um, and yeah, a the odd testimonial, but mostly good fun. All the links to all the other podcasts that we've done and just really developing a good community within the Waikato around ketogenic lifestyles. Um, that address again is waiket0.experienceketo.com and you can also find Waikato on Facebook, this time with just a normal zero. Hope you all have a great time, and we'll see you next time on the Stag Raw.